Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So happy to have you here with me on Colin or wherever you're listening to the show. It's going to be an interesting one today because we have one of the finest travel writers working today. Her name is Marcia DeSanctis. She has a fabulous new collection of essays. They come from a lot of places, but together they form a really, really fascinating travel memoir or even memoir memoir. It's called A Hard Place to Leave, Stories from a Restless Life. Hey, Marsha, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, Pauline. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's been so delightful reading this book. I've got to tell you. So I got to ask the obvious question, Why did you name it A Hard Place to Leave? It's a very good question, and it's a little bit counterintuitive if you read the book, but I find that everywhere is a hard place to leave. Everywhere I visit, everywhere I go, I think I could live here, and also my home is a very hard place to leave. Um, And often I, I get someplace, and I'm so happy to be there, And I think, I can never leave this place. And then I start feeling a little bit of tug of home. Um, And when I'm home, I feel a little bit of a tug tug of being away. And I think it's the essential conundrum that travelers feel. We often want to be someplace else, but we also um, kind of want to stay where we are. And we want sometimes the journeys never to end. Yeah, well, I I think that's a theme in the book, uh, you, the tug between you as a wandering soul and as a mom and a wife. Very much so, and I do think that these that I think travel in in my life certainly later in life, and I mean I I am I started writing all of these essays at age fifty. So I think travel was kind of a way to quell my restlessness. Um, and I think that as as mothers, as wives, as friends, as citizens, we have there are a lot of demands on us and, and on our and on our time and on our energy and on our love and everything. Um, and sometimes Sometimes just leaving really helps you understand and appreciate and kind of recalibrate all the great things that you have at home. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I love about this book and about you as a travel writer is, you know, there there are certain travel writers who it's all about a sense of place, others who really look at the history you, I feel like you bring in, you, I, I don't know if I, how do I explain this? You look at the destination almost, almost like it's another human being that has a psyche and a history and an effect on you that's very, very personal. And because of that, uh, you often deal with some of the sadder and more difficult parts of travel, like in your really fascinating, moving essay about Rwanda, Uh, you say uh, that it's almost like uh, going on a blind date with somebody really, really spectacular, but with a very difficult backstory. Uh, You also say, you know, how does a country repair the unrepairable? Can you talk a little bit about 
visiting Rwanda and some of the lessons you took from that? I'm so glad you asked me about Rwanda. Uh, and And I do think, back to what you said, I think that that in in good travel writing, that place is always a character. Place kind of forms the backbone of the story. Um, even if you have great characters, or even if you yourself are working out something spectacular, um, I I do think that that when you ha- you have to be open to absorbing the lessons of of uh, of wherever you are a stranger and um and i think that that in in great travel writing yes place is places it has a starring role yeah rwanda is a place that i have gone back to many many times the the essay that you're referring to was my first trip there and uh it's it is very interesting when i first went there i I went there to actually, I was just a recent empty nester and I was invited to work actually to teach journalism, to teach storytelling to some students who were, who were starting an NGO, journalism students. And I had done so much research and so much homework and read every book about the genocide that I could come across. I read biographies of Kagame, I read biographies of, of Romeo Dallaire, the head of the UN peacekeeping mission during the genocide. And I went there and I thought, this is just, I, I'm going to a damaged country. I'm going to a place that I, I felt like there would kind of not literally be blood on the streets, but there would be really a very brief memory of of blood on the streets, that there would be certainly metaphoric um, death everywhere. Sure. Really found that the place was, that, that they were not, of course, everybody was was damaged, some beyond repair by the genocide, but they were a country that was trying to kind of kind of lean into their into the future and they didn't just want to ta- talk about death and they didn't just want to talk about about uh, about tragedy they wanted to talk about who they were i remember one person said to me you know i don't want rwanda to be about dead rwandans i want rwanda to be about living rwandans and that was, I think, what I tried to convey in that in that first story. And I've since been back six times. Every time I go to Rwanda, I find another story or another story finds me. Right. Well, uh, I mean, in that first essay, you also, you, you do bring it up with somebody. You talk about, you know, where are your relatives and, and, and he kind of keeps cutting you off because uh, you say in the story, it's almost like, he knows that why should I even bother with this conversation? You can understand it intellectually, but unless you've lived through this, it's, it's maybe something that can't be shared. Yes, I think that's true. And I think that, that he was also sparing me emotionally because it's such, there's such a heavy toll of grief um, but I think he was trying to spare me. He said to me, you know, I, I said, 
I'm so sorry. And he said, it's not your fault. I think he was, I think he was trying to spare this awkward exchange that, that especially first time or recent visitors come bringing with them like this place is a place of sadness. There's this overlay of grief, but he was just trying to say, it's all right. You know, we're, we're, we are moving on. We won't ever forget this. We are moving on. And by the way, the last time I was there was last October. And it's, it's actually very difficult at this point to get people to talk about the genocide. I, I think a lot of there's there's a lot of tourists who want to talk to genocide survivors and people are very happy to do that but for the most part they seem to keep uh they have a a a, a special a special month in Rwanda where that is genocide commemorate gen, genocide memorial month and so that's a very heavy month of commemoration and memorialization but the rest of the year they're they're getting on with being you know one of the success stories of Africa so right. it's a very interesting place well and they've also become as you said one of the success stories of Africa i mean that's the surprising part of it this has become a major, major tourism destination because of the gorillas. And I, I thought your your story, your end of this story, when you go up and you're seeing the gorillas in person, I thought it was fascinating that you felt that they were watching you as much as you were watching them. And then you have an encounter. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I had it. I was one of those, you know, you read, wow, the gorillas are habituated to you. In other words, they are used to human beings now. They, if they were not habituated to human beings, to visitors, they would, you would never see them. And it takes a very long time for primates to get habituated and research and doctors and scientists and biologists. It's a huge thing. And so in theory, you can, you know, they, they are used to you and, you know, you're just, you know, gaping at this, at this wonder in front of you, but the silverback, which is about 500 pounds and, and really their heads are so huge. I mean, I think their heads are like a foot and a half long. They're just the biggest. I don't even know how they hold them up, but you, you said it was like a ham on top of like the body. Ham, like <laughs> the biggest ham you've ever seen. And uh, one of the, the silverback, so you're supposed to stand seven meters away. That is kind of a requirement. You're supposed to stand, I guess, about 21 feet away. But sometimes you're just in an enclosure and you just get a little closer. And the silverback stood up and just started walking. And his arms, were, the silverback is the dominant male in the group. Um, and he just started walking and his arms are swinging and he gave me and of a roundhouse punch on on my back, which is really on my kidneys, and I actually had a black and blue. I was I kind of spun around, but I was fine, just really in shock. Wow! Um, and I had I had a handprint as a bruise for a couple of for a while. It was it was really scary, but also a little bit. I Pauline, you know how it goes. It, it, when you have perfection on a travel story, sometimes. You don't have anything to write about, so right. No, there was your story. Once, once you got slammed by the silverback, um, there was my story. And there was a woman who was so you're put into these small groups, and 
I was alone, so I didn't know any, anyone in my group. It was two families of three. And one woman was very upset because she thought that the, I don't know if this is in my story, actually. She had been waited all her life to see the silver bat, to see the gorillas. And she had wished that it happened to her. So <laughs> as if I was singled out for, you know, for specialness, I think I was just really in the way. Also, because I was alone, the other people in the group were kind of in a cluster and taking each other's picture. And I didn't have any, I was just kind of standing there. I didn't have anyone to, you know, to take my picture with this magnificent backdrop. Wow. Well, uh, another one of the, I was going to say delights of the book, but uh, delight isn't the right word. One of the intriguing parts of the book is that you've gone to Russia a lot. And now with everything that's going on in the world, I think the the light you shed on the, on Russian history, on what it was like to live there when it was the USSR, on on their incredible uh, legacy of literature, and you know, as you say in your writing, when you read Chekhov. There's nobody more modern and more uh, insightful about the human condition. And yet, uh, right now, they are uh, the villains of the world. What do you think will happen uh, uh, to travel to Russia? Uh, will you be able to go back? I know this is a little off topic with the book, but there's so much of Russia in it. I really wanted to, to hear what you thought of the, the situation right now. I'm so glad you asked it. And it's something I think about a lot. I actually have just written an essay uh, that's going to be coming out next week on kind of what, what, what do you do about this? How much do you hold Russians accountable for Russian, for classic Russian literature now? And it's, uh, it's, it is a dilemma for me. I'm very, I think about this situation a lot. I spent so much of my time, I mean, really since I was in high school, being really obsessed with with Russian literature. I speak the language. I have um, I've spent a lot of time there. I've I've known lots of lots of Russians, Soviets, Uzbeks, Ukrainians, and I feel incredibly sad about it. I feel like uh, Russia like a lot of countries in the world, including our own, are very divided by, by these kind of demagogic leaders. And so I think that for all of the support that Russia, I mean, these are all Russian polls, for all of the support that Russia is, is suppo Russians are supposedly giving to this horrific, barbaric war in Ukraine, I'm sure that even if 50% says we love Putin, like 50% love Trump or 50% love Le Pen or 50% love whoever, right? There's a, there's another 50% that probably is just really recoiling in, in horror. Um, actually, I I went last week. I was in Poland. I just actually went on my own. I wow. was. In yeah, I was in Europe and I just thought I'd spend another week because I thought I could go to the border and see if I could find someone's story to tell because because I am a Russian speaker and I thought, I mean, this is a crisis where 
um, you know, where maybe I can find someone's story to tell. By no means not to be in the way of the humanitarians and people that are doing amazing work and, you know, don't need people coming in for a day or two. Uh, but it's a, it's a, it's, I think really one of the biggest tragedies that we can, that we can imagine and really so, so pointless. So I do feel a dilemma. I, my husband has never been to Russia. My kids have always been really interested in, in Russia and the fact that I speak Russian and still have a lot of kind of connection to that culture and history. But I think the country's going to more than, more than suffer. Yeah. No one's going to visit, and it's going to take a generation. No, I know it's really, really tragic. Well, let's let's uh, move on to a, a happier topic. Sorry yeah. if if that's a terrible transition, I but it's a terrible <laughs> transition because it was a big part of my life, big part mm-hmm. of my story, and a big part of my travels. I was always trying to find a way to get back to Russia. Right, right, and 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 this book. I think everybody should read today just because of the insights you give uh, into current or c- recent uh, Russian life. Not current, yeah. obviously. Um, so you also spent a lot of time in France. In fact, uh, you have a New York Times bestseller uh, telling women how they should travel to France. And I absolutely adored your story about uh, Le Grand Vefeur. Yeah. Uh, tell us about your connection there and about the restaurant. It is just one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's so funny because we're so caught up. Certainly travel writers, travel writing, the travel industry is very caught up in what's new and who's the new chef and what's the, you know, where's the great design restaurant and in what's going on. But, uh, Le, Le Grand Vefour has been around for over 200 years. It is just the most magnificent place. Um, it's on the corner of the gardens of the, um, I won't use a French accent because it will sound silly, um, of the Palais Royal, <laughs> which is, was built by the Duke of, uh, the Duke of Orleans um, a couple hundred years ago. And I had my wedding reception there, which sounds so incredibly grand, even as I say it in my kind of crumbling house in rural Connecticut. Um, but it was kind of, it was doable in 1991. Well, when- and it was the only place that said yes to you. A lot of places didn't want an American, apparently. Yeah. Well, they didn't want an American. They they thought it was some kind of some person who was trying to make herself Parisian and grand by by wanting to get married in Paris. But in fact, I was living there at the time. I was a working journalist. Um, and I got married there and it was beautiful. We had 50 people. It was completely lovely and just a perfect wedding day. And I went back there um, for my 20th anniversary. I actually went alone. I had had a bit of a midlife crisis and sort of a marital a marital crisis, I would say. Which is explored in the book, I thought, with, with uh, well, I, I think your husband is a, a, a remarkable person from the way you describe him. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the discussion of the marital troubles was so moving and so fascinating. I'm, I'm stunned you made it through, but uh, I'm thrilled you did. We did. We did. Sometimes, you know, you, as I asked in that story, does it take more 
courage to leave a marriage or does it take more courage to soldier on? And we felt that our, 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 our marriage was imperfect. It was, it was, it had flaws, but we really didn't want to quit. So, so I went back to the Grand Vey Four and, uh, and I met the chef who, uh, and the chef who is now, who now owns the Grand Vey Four outright. And he actually arrived in, at, at the restaurant about the time that I was married. So we were both at our 20th anniversary and I thought, and he had a lot of ups and downs. He had a Michelin star. He lost it. He, hmm. it kind of went back in fashion. And then people said, oh, these tired old places. I don't want to go to those. So he has had to kind of soldier on in this very important relationship in his life. So I got some kind of cool life lessons from the chef and the owner of a great Parisian restaurant. So Yeah. Yeah. No, I've never been, I'm embarrassed to say. Now I want to, I desperately want to go the next time I'm in Paris. Uh, you also made one of the best arguments I think I've ever read uh, using some wonderful literary sources for why it's so great to travel alone, just as you did when you went back alone for your 20th anniversary in Paris. Um, I, I love the fact that I, I, let me see if I wrote a note about it, uh, that after traveling with F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway said, you never, sh- you only should travel with people you love, because I guess F. Scott Fitzgerald was not a great traveling companion. You take that a step further saying you only should travel alone. Why do you think it's better to travel alone? I love solo travel. I think now it's, it's interesting because I am a journalist and a travel writer. I can't imagine. I, I brought my husband on one story with me and he had the greatest time (laughs) and I had to interview every chef, you know, the director of the spa, the sustainability manager, the, you know, it's really interesting. I was so worried that I was not, that we weren't doing any of these things together. I was worried about kind of what he needed to do when I'm alone. I really only worry about, about myself, which is the exact opposite of what happens at home. At home, we are caretaking. We're, especially women, I would say, um, at home, I'm always taking care of something. I'm always looking after the house or the dog or the bills or the driveway or, you know, I don't know, what am I looking after today? This molding that's falling down. Oh, you know, and, and, but when we're alone, we're, when we're out and kind of cast off of our moorings and detached from the people we love in our home, I think we're, we're a lot more open to, to observation. I think we're a lot more, we're, we're, our senses are much more heightened. I mean, think about it. If you're on a walk and you're talking to somebody and you're looking at them and you're looking down and it's very different from being alone and, and not only kind of nodding good morning to whoever you see, but just looking around some more and just, just being, you know, having all of your five senses switched on. So I think it's a, I think it's something that everybody should undertake. I, I disagree that it isn't for everybody. I think that it is uh, hmm. 
think it is for everybody. I think it's people always say, do you get lonely? And I say, you know, I get lonely at, at home. I get sure I get lonely all the time. But when I travel, you're, you also have a kind of a point to your, to your loneliness. You also are, you know, are moving. And I, I don't really find that I get lonely when I'm moving. Although I think that maybe one of the key fears involved with traveling alone is eating alone in a restaurant. And, and you discuss this in, in the story about being in Normandy and being at a very fine restaurant all alone, and you feel like the waiters and maybe the chef were worried about you in some way that you were having this experience alone. Yeah, I think they thought I was either, you know, on the make or I just went there to drink or just some sad character. But you never really know what someone's story is. You know, someone could be alone because their husband or their boyfriend or their girlfriend had to, you know, work in the hotel room or something. And it is funny, but when a woman walks into a restaurant alone, it's just it's just funny. It's a table for one. You're sure? Table for one? I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. no, I, it's fine. Table for one. Yes, one person. Um, I'm not, you know, this isn't a tragedy. Let's all get through this. So I'm, I'm very confident about that. I actually always have been. I remember in high school, I grew up in the Boston area, and sometimes there was a movie I wanted to see in Harvard Square, which was near, which was, you know, a couple miles from where I grew up. And they had these, these movies in the day, and sometimes I'd go on a Saturday, and my mother just thought it was so peculiar, like, what, you're going to the movies alone? Like, yeah, what's wrong with that? It was, it was really funny, and I don't think it means that I'm necessarily a super secure person. I just get regenerated, actually. I, I kind of... Um, no, I'm with you. I prefer traveling alone just because I, I find I meet more people that way. I'm open to having conversations that I wouldn't necessarily. I always sit at the bar so I can I can chat with people. That's um, a good point, actually, and what, one I didn't mention. But, yeah, you can meet more people. You can offer yourself a little more generously as a citizen and uh and an ambassador. And yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Now, one of the funniest stories uh, in the collection, I thought, is back in Rwanda again, you're climbing a mountain, but you're haunted by Connie Britton. Uh, often when I give advice on what you should read when you're traveling, uh, I don't know, it's the standard advice, I think. You you read about the destination you're going to or you watch films about the destination you're going to. But I got to say, after reading that story, I thought, no, it's kind of interesting to have really random things influencing you as you travel, that you can make something of that. Can you talk about climbing that mountain with Connie Britton, kinda. Yeah, no, I that was so. I believe it was right, probably right before Netflix. Anyway, you couldn't get Netflix overseas, and I I had a hard time reading in some hotel rooms because the the lighting is just too dark at mm. night. You know, they don't, especially if you're in one of these kind of rural hotels, and so. I knew I was going to be in the mountains and I, uh, I downloaded, remember you used to download oh, yeah. theories on iTunes or something. 
and I down, I was obsessed with that show, Nashville. I thought she was the most incredible. I just loved looking at her and she, her character was so perfect. She was so talented. She was such a good mother. She was so unbelievably sexy without being, you know, over the top. Um, and anyway, I, I, I was drawing some life lessons actually from her because I was thinking, what would Connie Britton do? You know, what would be, what would this right. country music mogul and star, what, what would she think about me climbing this mountain that I, I, I sort of accepted as a challenge? Uh, it was, it was a, one of the five volcanoes in the Virunga, on the Rwanda side of the Virunga range. And I, I wanted to do this challenge. I'm going to climb something. And then I thought, I don't know why do we have to <laughs> every challenge have to do we have to face every fear do we have to face every challenge we're often called society to go the distance face our fear um conquer fear uh I'm sure there's another word for it but challenge ourselves and yeah and I was really kind of miserable and I thought Maybe I really don't need to challenge myself. So, but then I thought afterwards, because I felt so good after I, I was tired, it took all day, it was full of mud, and I was going to sleep. And I thought, actually, I'm really glad I did that. I think, I think Connie would approve. So, well, it sounded like absolute hell. And I've done that too, you know, uh, recently. And this is something that people actually enjoy I'm ta- skiing. I forgot that I hate skiing, and I went to the top of a glacier in Austria with my family where you couldn't see five feet of in front of you because it was blizzard-like conditions, and I basically cried my way down the mountain because I was so miserable, and I had spent so much money to put myself in that position. I, I, I thought it was an interesting uh, piece because it, it really did go with – Yes, there's something about challenging yourself, but do we need to? I, you, you kind of show both sides of that argument in the well, piece. Uh, yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not a skier. Skiing terrifies me. It's downhill speed. Up in New England, every friend, everyone I knew growing up was going to Vermont or New Hampshire or skiing every weekend, and, and I did not go skiing. I, I, I'm terrified of skiing. So I'm, if it were a giant mountain in Austria, I would have just found, you know, the chairlift or whatever it is. And yeah, I finally got myself to the chairlift. So yeah, I, I sat in the lodge. I had, I think, three glasses of wine. <laughs> and then I, I took the chairlift down and just waited for my family. Uh, so one last question, and one I, actually I want to I, I want to give a plug here. One of the ways we know one another is we both teach at the uh, Book Passage Travel Writers Conference, which is coming back in person this August. I think it's one of the best ways for folks who want to do what you do, Marsha, become a travel writer, uh, to, to get their foot in the door and, and really learn the craft. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the conference and then we'll say goodbye? Sure. It is, it's just a, just this incredible, lovely 
meeting of like minds. And uh, I'm, I'm a little bit new to the conference. I was, have just been on the faculty once, um, probably would have been the last couple of years if it had been on because of the pandemic. But it was started by Don George, who is a really a, a legendary, I guess. That's the word that always is attached to him, but he really is. He's just a gatherer of people and he inspires so many. Um, in, uh, and it takes place at Book Passage, which is one of the great independent book bookstores on, in the continent. It is yeah. in uh, Marin County, Corte Madeira, California. And I love this conference because people, it's, it's kind of a different breed of person, somebody who kind of seeks out, seeks out being a stranger, hmm. uh, seeks out being, you know, seeks out the unfamiliar. And I think that that's, I mean, that's journalism as well, but somebody who, who is, you know, just has this curiosity about about uh, about having experiences elsewhere. So there's all kind of things you can do. You can uh, you can perfect a, a or, or work on, I guess, uh, a travel essay, which is of course my favorite genre. Um, or you can really learn how to do nuts and bolts on you know how to pitch. To, you know, best of ten best lists. Um, sure. Any places that do that, you. You can do photography. You can um, you can really learn how to um, you know really really how to make a story. And what is travel writing? It's so many things. It's destination stories. It's service p- stories. It's emotional stories about about place. But it's a it's a place that puts it all together, and it's a lot of fun too. I can't yeah. wait, and I and I'm really excited to see you. Yes, I'm excited to see you in person there, too. So that's happening in August. Go to bookpassage.com, I think, is the uh, uh, the website for that. And Marsha's book, once again, is called A Hard Place to Leave, Stories from a Restless Life. It'll be coming out next week or so, right? Next week. Yeah, it comes out May 3rd. So I think you always expect this big drum roll, but I think it'll probably be an uneventful day. But but we'll see. Oh, I'm. It won't be unadventful. Treat yourself because it's a wonderful, wonderful read. Uh, and I have to thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show, Marcia. It's a thrill and an honor. And thank you so much for taking the time to read my book too. Oh, it 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 bettered my days very definitely. Uh, thank you. All right, we're going to say goodbye for this week, uh, and to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. Watching cable